Beloved, I started seminary in the fall of 1997. My first two courses that I enrolled in were an Old Testament survey and beginning Hebrew. And I remember in the Old Testament survey, my then professor, Keith Essex, now friend, uh, Keith Essex, uh, Keith was basically describing in this Old Testament survey class a priority that we have as New Testament Christians towards the New Testament and at the same time supporting the Old Testament. And Keith referenced a saying that went something like this. You, as New Testament Christian, you should read the New Testament first, but you ought not read the New Testament twice until you have read the Old Testament once. And there's some truth to that. What I'd like to do this morning is offer you an addendum. Perhaps we might be best served if we don't read the New Testament first until we have read Genesis 1 through 3 once. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And even with that, if by way of application, when I think of giving people that I'm trying to evangelize books of the Bible to read, I very often think of Mark, 1 John. I think what I might do is I might tweak that a little bit and start saying, read Genesis 1 through 3 and then read Mark or read 1 John. Just a thought in the context of this creation conference weekend. And in that, of course, we have uh, two world-class scholars, uh, four Canyon Ministry friends, now officially Santan Bible Church, River Rats, and 22 Santan Bible Church brothers and sisters that will be going on this week-long 190-mile float and rapid water rafting through the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon. Amazing trip. I took this last year in July of 2022. You begin up at Marble Canyon. You begin going down through the layers of stratification that are visible evidence of God's fierce judgment that we read of in Genesis 6 through 8 when God basically scrubbed the entire earth down to a foundation clean and laid that out. Then you go below what is called the great unconformity below the level of where the great deeps, the great uh, floodgates of the deep burst open in Genesis 7, 11, all the way down to one of my favorite spots in the canyon is called the Granite Narrows. This is where the Colorado River is its deepest, and you get down to what could even be thought of as perhaps day three creation rock. As Andrew mentioned yesterday, we weren't there some 6,000 years plus ago, so we're not entirely sure what creation rock looked like exactly on day three, but we get as close to it as we can in something like Granite Narrows, where you see these magnificent uh, granites and igneous rock of this great giant granite shafts coming up out of the river. And I remember when we were floating on that last year, I can't remember, Bill, if it was you or Andrew, but uh, I think one of the two of you said something along the lines of, you can just imagine God saying on day three, let the mountains rise. One of the other great blessings that took place then and will take place this week is to have the Word of God read from Genesis 1, verse 1 to Genesis 2, verse 3, which, beloved, that is our text here this morning. And as we would embark in this, we should understand that all answers to all questions about the origin of life find their foundation in Genesis 1 through 3. We see the purpose of life and the destiny even after life. Because in the world, when there is no past, when there is no future, when there is no purpose, the present loses its meaning. How you hold Genesis is how you will hold everything else. God, man, sin, judgment, salvation, marriage, divorce, the list goes on. And here in Genesis 1, 
especially through chapter 2, verse 3, the stage is set for the great play of human history that unfolds in the rest of the pages of Scripture and even continues to unfold to this day. When people ask, why, what, why do you believe this about racism? Why do you believe that about homosexuality? Why do you believe this about abortion? The answer begins in Genesis. Beloved, listen as I read our passage here this morning. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 we begin. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there's evening and there's morning, a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. And there's evening, and there was morning, a third day. And then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every wing bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which is fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to every thing that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. And by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, as we would at a high level go through this amazing chapter plus three verses, which by the way, the chapter divisions came after the writing of the word of God. The chapter division really should have been after verse three in my thinking. But in any event, we'll look at three elements, the creator, his creation, and then the creature. And even if we think of the kind of boundaries between these outline points, there's a little fuzziness there. The sermon title here is the wonder of creation. And when we think of creation, that implies the creator. Or even if we think of the creature at the end, there are living creatures that are part of God creating the animals, but the creature, the pinnacle, the apex of God's creation is man, male and female being created in the very image of God. And beloved, the reason this is so important, the reason that all believers need to be rooted in this, the reason that we would direct people that we're trying to communicate the good news of the gospel with the foundation that God is the creator, the reason why this is an element of our discipleship, of our counseling, is because in the rebellion of sin, man forgets his creaturehood. But the word of God directs a creature worshiper back to being a creator worshiper. That is what is at stake here. So let's have a first brief glimpse at the creator in verses 1 and 2. And what we have here, as Bill and Andrew reminded us yesterday, is we are reading an eyewitness account. No one was there at the beginning of the universe. No one was there at the beginning save the author of the universe, the creator of the universe. This is God's eyewitness account. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this first sentence in the Bible is perhaps the most controversial sentence in the Bible because it sets Christianity against evolutionism and atheism and paganism and secularism and existentialism and a host of other isms. This is a shibboleth issue. And it's fascinating because Moses, this is the word of God, and Moses was a human author born along 
by the Holy Spirit. And it's fascinating because Moses doesn't begin the Bible. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, he doesn't begin by trying to prove the existence of God. Moses, the Bible, presumes, assumes, and understands that God does exist. God is self-existent. He is uncaused and independent. Even in eternity past, God existed in perfect solitude and in perfect self-sufficiency. And when we think of the sovereign God out of eternity past who all of a sudden creates, he is not creating out of any need on his part because he has no need. Beloved, the creator God of the universe creates out of his fullness, not out of his need, out of his generosity. And of course, nothing came into being that is in being until God created the heavens and the earth. And we continue on, verse 2, right here at the embryonic stage, at the nascent form of his creation, the earth was formless and void, tohu wa bohu, and darkness was over the surface of the earth. So it was formless, it was without separation, it was without boundaries, it was without distinction. It was void, it was empty, it was without population. The fledgling universe and earth here was a formless, well, the earth was a formless, watery mass of unorganized material without boundaries. But there's nothing evil, there's nothing chaotic here, there's nothing bad. Even at this point, the earth is good at this point because it's perfectly fulfilling God's purpose at this point in time time. All the materials, all the building blocks are there. It is, to be sure, incomplete, unfinished, unorganized. As we were reminded yesterday, more to the point, it was uninhabitable. But there was nothing bad or evil. It's still good. And we can state that definitively. Why? Because look at the end of verse 2. Because the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The Holy Spirit is preserving and protecting and watching over, like Deuteronomy 32 verse 11 uses the same word to describe, the same word to describe an eagle that hovers, a mother eagle hovering and watching and protecting her nest. That's what the Holy Spirit was doing over the surface of the waters, watching and protecting. The picture here, beloved, is a picture of calmness, gentleness, peace, and control. So, In the beginning, at this point in the beginning, God created time, matter, and space. The elements here are created in a shapeless form enveloped by darkness. And pause there for a moment. Uh, When we think of beginning, when we think of the explanations of the beginning, for there to even be a beginning, there must be something or someone above and beyond the beginning. There must be something or one that has the power of being within himself. And there are really only two options. There are only two options for the origin of the universe. You can boil them down. Either the universe itself is self-existent or self-creating and eternal from eternal matter, or it was created by someone who himself is self-existent and eternal. The 19th century pastor and abolitionist Henry Ward Beecher was friends with an atheist, Colonel Robert Ingersoll. Ingersoll once came to hear his friend Henry Beecher preach, and afterwards Beecher invited Ingersoll into his study. And in his study, Beecher had this exquisitely painted, beautiful globe that was painted with mountains and valleys. And Ingersoll looked at it, and he told 
uh, Beecher, he said, Henry, this is one of the most beautiful pieces of art I've ever seen. Who made this for you? Beecher replied, nobody made it. It just happened. And you get the point. Beloved, there are only two possibilities. There are only two options. Nothing times nothing equals everything, or somebody times nothing equals everything. And if you want to follow the Big Bang uh, myth, which gets a little bit closer to a scientifically good understanding, it's something times a singularity equals, or excuse me, nothing times a singularity equals everything. Beloved, the Bible makes it very clear. There is no question. God is the creator. He is the eternal self-existent being that for his pleasure, according to his will, and for the joy of his children, spoke the universe into existence. If you're here this morning, friend, and you're not, if you don't really buy the whole idea of God as creator, you're not necessarily even trusting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me ask a question, if I may. We are thrilled that you're here with us, but why would it appeal to you, the idea of eternal matter, appeal more to you than the idea of an eternal creator? I would submit to you from a logical standpoint, I would even say from a scientific standpoint, from a rational standpoint, but all that really doesn't matter. Ultimately, from a biblical standpoint, consider that God is the uncaused mover, the uncaused first cause. He is the creator. And another way to frame those two options is really we either believe what God tells us in Genesis 1 or we don't. And I would say this even to uh, Christians, to someone who professes Christ that really isn't so sure whether or not Genesis 1 through 11, that we should just take that at face value the way God reveals it to us. We're not so sure how it fits in with evolution. And what I would submit to you, dear brother or sister, is if we don't take God at his very clear, straightforward word in Genesis 1 through 11, at what point do we start taking God at his Word. That is what is at stake. That's why we're even having this creation conference weekend. So that is a brief look at the creator. Now let's move on to his creation in verses 3 through 25. And what we see here is that our creator God forms the formless and fills the void. <clears throat> he forms the formless on days 1 through 3 and he fills the void on days four through six. This is divine separation and divine population. So first, our creator forms the formless. Verse three, look at what it says. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Um, In the original Hebrew, just two words. God says, be light, and there's light from one end of the universe. Instantaneously, there's light from one end of the universe to the other. Augustine calls this the divine imperative. And it was kind of fun if you were here from the, for the uh, conference yesterday. One of the uh, challenges, one of the fun dynamics of being a final speaker when there's a topic of a series of speakers in a conference is people take your illustrations before you get to them. This is very much the same way as John chapter 11 when Jesus, who is the creator, when Lazarus was slaying, and the way King Jim would say, stinketh because he'd been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and after millions of years, Lazarus came forth. 
And I did borrow the joke from Dr. Snelling from yesterday. No, beloved, in the same way that there's a dead corpse and when Jesus Christ, the God-man, says, Lazarus, come forth, instantaneous, there is life where there was no life before. In the same way, God says, be light, let there be light, and there is light. And God saw that the light was good. When we see this repeated phrase that basically all the elements of God's creation get God's inspection and God's approval. When it says that the light was good, it means his creation at this point is certainly morally good, but it's also complete and adequate for his purpose at this point in time. Now, it is to be developed and unfolded and expanded on, but it is perfect for what it's at right here. Verse 4 God separated the light from the darkness and called the light day. This separation, this divine separation, again, is where God is forming the formless. It's all part of his perfect plan. And called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Uh, this couplet, this pair, evening and morning, appears some hundred times in the Old Testament, always referring to a 24-hour Day. And this begins a stately rhythm that we see unfolding through all the days of God's creation, evening and morning. And this tells us that here at this point, the earth is now rotating on its axis. On its axis. One thing, too, in anticipation, what we see here is light is created on day one, but the sun, moon, which reflects the sun and the stars, aren't created till day four. God creates light on day one with all of its amazing properties, its wave properties of a visible spectrum and such, and its particle properties for photosynthesis, for example. Then three days later, in his perfect wisdom, he creates the light sources. But now the light is dispersed across all the universe. And that ends day one, and so now we come to the dawning of day two. The dawning of the day, too, the universe is light and dark. The earth is an undifferentiated mass of elements engulfed in water. And then in verses 6 through 8, we see the second part of God's divine separation where he puts an expanse in between in the midst of the waters below and the waters above. And beloved, all of this, what is taking place here is your creator God, Yahweh Yaira, God our provider, is providing light to shine, air to breathe. And then we go to day three, and he provides land to live. As he forms the formless, God separates and God sets boundaries, a boundary between light and dark, waters above and waters below. Now on day three, between dry land and the seas. Verse nine, look at it. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. I love that phrase, and it was so, we see again and again. Simple little three short English words, but words that flow out of and come from God's sovereignty, God's grandeur, God's glory, God's eternal purpose. Verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So what takes place here is God commands the waters to be gathered together in one place. In the 
Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the word synagogue, gathered together in one place. And then tremendous chemical reactions unfold as the elements combine to form minerals, rocks, and soils, which form the uh, crust, the mantle, and the core of the earth. And God separates the water from the dry land, and it was so. It was so. Beloved, all that to say, uh, you know, Dr. Snelling, Dr. Barrick, they can probably have a little better understanding of uh, maybe Andrew a little more of the scientific standpoint of the significance of this. But all of us, when we think of the immense power and dynamic of what's taking place right here before us as we read this, we know, we see God's eternal power in the product of his creation that we can look and observe now. What we have here is God gives us a glimpse into the process of this. This is the same kind of dynamic the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote to the church in Rome, Romans 1.20. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, having been understood through what has been made. Now, of course, the original context there, Paul was saying that to let all human beings know that whether or not somebody acknowledges God as creator, whether or not someone has even heard the gospel, they're all without excuse because man knows the truth about God as creator and man suppresses that truth in unrighteousness. But the point here is his eternal power and divine nature. That's flowing from what we read here in Genesis chapter 1. And beloved, what God creates, he also preserves and he provides for. Your gracious and generous creator provides everything needed to you, to me, even to the plants, even to the birds and the sea creatures, not just to survive, but to thrive. So, for example, on the end, or at least the latter portion of day three in verses 11 through 13, God creates vegetation. He creates self-reproducing vegetation, plants yielding seed, trees yielding seed and bearing fruit. All part of God making here the plant word, plant world fully grown and fully functional instantaneously. Verse 12, and God saw that it was good. Beloved, dear friend, a tree is good. A tree is good because we can build a tree house in it, we can climb it, we can pluck fruit from it, we can cut it down and we can burn it for warmth, we can build a house, we can build a pulpit. In the first service, I said altar, and I had to apologize. I said, I'm in the Old Testament or something. It's, we can use it. A big, so a tree is good for all these reasons, but more to the point, a tree is ultimately good because God created it, created them, and God pronounces the tree good. That's why it is good. God saw that it was good. And I even thought of when I think of the whole dynamic of seeing the evidence of God's fierce judgment in the stratification layers you can see in the Grand Canyon and of how God scrubbed down to the bare rock and just laid everything out all over that in his fierce global worldwide judgment. At the same time, because he is a holy, righteous God who does judge sin, he is also a gracious God who provides. And so the coal deposits, the oil that deposits that were laid down by the animals and by the plants that was formed during his fierce judgment as a future provision for all human beings, saved and otherwise, for warmth and for fuel. So, beloved, again, God is a gracious and generous creator. 
So the creator forms the formless. Your creator also fills the void. He does this in days four through six. So he separates the light from the darkness on day one. And then on day four, he fills the sky with the luminaries, with the sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, he separates the waters below from the waters above. And then on day five, he fills the sky with winged creatures and the seas with sea creatures. He separates the dry land and the seas on day three. And then on day six, he fills the land with animals and the apex, the culmination of his creation, man himself. So God fills the void. And in verses 14 through 19, when we see God creating the sun, moon, and stars, again, we see God creating a mature universe, fully grown and fully functional for its intended purpose, even right here in Genesis chapter 1. So we know that the plants weren't created as seeds. They were created as plants yielding seed, trees bearing fruit and yielding seed. Adam and Eve, whom we'll come to in a bit, they weren't created as babies. They were created as fully functional adults. So also in the same way, when God created the lights of the heaven, the sun and all the stars, he created the light, created the light sources, the luminaries with their light hitting the earth. Why? Because we see he did it, the text tells us, four signs, as signs for days and months and years and for seasons, regulating work, regulating worship for the nation of Israel, for the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the feasts. God tells us right here in Genesis 1 what the purpose of these were, these fully functional light sources that he creates. And now, as we come to animal life in verses 20 through 21, flying creatures, sea creatures. Beloved, dear friend, animal life did not emerge from a fragile blob of protoplasm that happened to come together by chance in response to some electrical discharge in some primordial soup. I remember I was evangelizing a young Muslim man in France and we were talking about the origin of life. God is a creator. And I said, life must come from life. And he said, no, he goes, uh, uh, maggots. Maggots come from, they, they just come, they are spontaneously created from rotting meat, which that's what people used to think hundreds of years ago. I didn't know people still did that. And beloved, dear friend, the idea that life generated spontaneously from non-life is a non-starter. It's a non-starter scientifically. It's a non-starter logically and rationally. And Infinitely more importantly, it's a non-starter biblically. And what we see here is God creates reproducing and bounded life. Living creatures, fully grown, fully functioning. God decrees, God says, another divine imperative, let birds fly above the earth. Ba eggs don't fly. Baby birds don't fly. And by the way, just a point here, plants aren't living creatures. Plants do have life in a sense. They sprout, they grow, and they die. But animals have the breath of life in them in a certain sense. They're very distinct. And then at the end of verse 21, and God saw that it was good. Another example here, a salmon. A salmon is good because we can catch it. We can eat it. It's good because it's rich in omega-3 omega fatty oils. Same way, though, salmon is ultimately good because God created salmon and God pronounces salmon are good. So God creates life that's breathing, moving. It's mature, complex, bounded, reproducing, and we see here, blessed. 
Everything up to day five has received God's inspection and his approval. Now God adds his blessing even to the animals here. God, verse 22, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there is evening and there is morning a fifth day. So by the end of this fifth day, the earth is filled with luxurious vegetation and swarming with sea life and swarming with flying creatures in the air. God formed in three days. God is filling here in three days. And here we also get the first glimpse that God continues to fill by commanding the birds to multiply. In the same way that the plants were yielding seed and bearing fruit, so also here the birds are multiplying. That's an extension of God's filling. And so God creates unique reproducing life and God creates bounded life. One of the other key phrases that we see again and again here is after their kind. If you look at verses 24 and 25, you see this. This one Hebrew word, men, appears 31 times in the Old Testament. Ten times, one-third of those appearances, almost one-third of those appearances are in Genesis 1. Seven of those appearances are in verses 20 through 25, after their kind. Again, part of God forming the formless is separating and setting boundaries. What this means is it leaves absolutely no room whatsoever for evolution of any kind. The boundaries are firm, fixed, and established by the Lord. And the fossil record, which Darwin was nervous about because he was concerned whether or not, although he gave an optimistic statement, the fossil record will bear me out. And guess what? It didn't. So, now the evolutionary scientists have to kind of backpedal and shuffle so they come up with what we could call the hopeful monster theory or if you want a more scientifically palatable statement it's called punctuated equilibrium where in a sense a lizard lays an egg and out pops a bird. Now to be sure an evolutionist wouldn't necessarily put it that way but that is what you have to have but I digress back in the text of the word of God which is what counts. God saw at the end of verse 25 that it was good. Nothing missing. Nothing out of place, no conflict, no struggle, no death. So the creator, his creation, now we come to the creature. Again, there were living creatures before, but this is the creature. The garden's ready. Man's house is built. That which was uninhabitable is now habitable. It's ready for occupancy. The whole universe, beloved, was created for the purpose of man to live in it and to see the hand of God declared through it, the glory of God reflected in it. And to that, you and I, we are reflectors of God's image and we are rulers of his creation. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Again, Plants had life, sprout, grow, die. Animals have a different kind of life. God bless them. They have a level of consciousness. We are self-conscious. We have some of the communicable attributes of God we have as part of you and me. Every man, woman, and child, every ethnicity, both genders, every age, every human being, Unborn or born is made in the image of God. That gives great value to every human life. That's why we say what we say about racism. That's why we say what we say about abortion. That's why, and the list can go on and on. We are unique. We have 
the ability to create. Our creativity is an echo of God's creativity. But this doesn't, shouldn't make us ponder our greatness. Rather, beloved, our uniqueness, our being at the apex of God's creation points us to God, not to self. So we are reflectors of God's image. Secondly, we are rulers of God's creation. Look at the rest of verse 26. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now the point here is as a result of you and I being made in the image of God, we have a vested authority. We have dominion over the entire world. So because of that, we are as Christians, we are to endeavor to strive to reflect God's character and to rule God's creation. We display his image and we express his rule. And then, of course, my favorite part, I think, of this is verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Adam was made in the image of God. Eve is made in the image of God because she was taken from man. Man and woman are equal in worth and value and essence, and they're absolutely not indistinguishable. There's a difference. Viva la difference. And the question someone can ask is, well, who's superior? Since man was made first, does that mean he's superior? I like what James Montgomery Boyce, the late Dr. Boyce said. He said, man is absolutely superior, uh, a man is absolutely superior to a woman at being a man. A woman is absolutely superior to, to man at being a woman. God has made male and female equal of worth and essence. And beloved, there are so many rabbit trails we could go down now. We won't do that. Just to say, as God's new creatures, as born-again men and women, we oppose the lies and we show compassion to those who are deceived by them. They are not our enemies. They are our mission field. So what we have here is God's good creation. No disease, no pollution, no earthquakes, no floods, no tsunamis, no disorder, no struggle, no sin, and above all, no death. And when we think of the fossil record, that's what Andrew's teaching on right now. The fossil record speaks loudly of sudden violent death. It speaks of disease and injury, storms and convulsions. Simply put, the fossil record speaks of a world that's just like our present one, a world that is groaning under the burden of sin, like the Apostle Paul writes of in Romans chapter 8. And by the way, the worldwide flood of Genesis 6 through 8 is, the per- is a perfectly, scientifically, rationally, accurately, more importantly, biblical, biblically accurate record and the source of the fossil record. Verse 31, summary statement of the first chapter, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So the stately rhythm comes to a conclusion. Each day ends with that repeated phrase of evening and morning, morning, emphatically declaring the six days are the same regular 24-hour days, which means, by the way, that on day four, when God's created luminaries, the sun and the stars, took over the light responsibilities from the dispersed day one light creation, the earth's rotation on its axis remained the same. 
God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. All of the days of creation, one, two, three, four, five, were pronounced good. God's inspection, God's approval. Day six is very good. Again, demonstrating his pleasure in the pinnacle of his creation, male and female. It's a summary statement of all six days, but with a focus on day six. And beloved, the good creator is worshipped by creatures who reflect his goodness and who give him glory. And we have a brief epilogue in the next three verses, uh, chapter two, verses one through three, where in a sense we move from creation to providence. We are a shifting, and God ceases his work of creativity, and God consecrates. He again separates and sets boundaries. He sets a boundary and separates between time and holy day, holy time, between every day and this day, the Lord's day. Now, there's a distinction between the first day of the week, the Lord's day, and the Sabbath. Don't have time to unfold it here. I'd be happy to answer the question. You can well, actually, can't hit Bill. You can't hit anybody that's going on the river trip up, but be happy to talk about that later. But you get the point. And we can think of this also, too, that all of these luminaries that God is setting these in place, as we saw before, as signs for the seasons, for the months, for the days, for the years. A day is defined by the Earth's rotation about its axis. A month is defined by the moon. A year is, of course, defined by one rotation of the Earth, one orbit around the sun. But what defines a week? Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, specifically Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And different countries, uh, Russia, France, different countries and different peoples have tried to tweak that, to try to mess with that. Some have tried a four-day week, a five-day week. Russia tried one time to extend it out to a 10-day week. And built into the fabric of men and women, it did not work. So in the very fiber of our being revealed on the pages of Scripture, every week, whether or not anyone acknowledges God as creator, every human being reflects and acknowledges God as creator from the very existence of the weeks by which we govern our lives. And the last words we see in verse 3, which God had created, which Elohim had barah. In the beginning, Bereshit, Barah, Elohim. That's how Genesis 1-1 begins, and this is how chapter 2, verse 3, that's why we know this is a section, and that's why I made the statement before, not a big point, but should have put the chapter division here. Beloved, man didn't, this is in conclusion, man didn't invent evolution ultimately because he doesn't like God as creator. Man sucked evolution out of his wicked thumb because he doesn't like God as judge. Man wants his sin. It's not so much that we replace God with our idols, it's that we decided we should take his place. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about also in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the problem. That's why the word of God is necessary. That's why the gospel doesn't begin at John 3.16. The gospel begins at Genesis 1.1. And I had that in my notes before the sessions yesterday, just to set the record straight. And beloved, the world, Darwin, Hitler, Freud, Margaret Sanger, the list goes on, etc. ad nauseum. They don't care if you worship a different God. They just won't tolerate you if you worship the God of the Bible. And the reality is without a past, without a present, without a purpose, as I said before, the 
the present has no meaning. Man is left like a bubble on the ocean of life. No past, no future, just ready to burst one day with destiny. The situation is the dust of death is settled upon all of humanity. The black cloud of darkness and death hovers over the human race. So it demands a new creation from dust to glory. And we can't cross that boundary on our own terms or in our own time. That's why God, that's why Jesus Christ in human form penetrates the barrier from his side and comes to meet us. The, he, who is the, he who is the imago dei, he who is the image of God, came down and died for those of us made in the image of God. The Apostle Paul told the immature Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, watch this, who is the image of God. Dear friend, Jesus Christ was hidden in the will of God before he came out of the womb of the virgin in time. He was a lamb slain in decree before he became a lamb slain on the cross. And before he was slain on the cross, before he was buried, before he rose from the grave in victory over death and sin, he made this statement. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls." Our body needs rest. Our soul needs ultimate rest, eternal rest, Sabbath rest. That's the blessing. That's the gospel message. That's what we will celebrate right here, right now when we approach the communion table. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your infinite wisdom, for your perfect plan. We praise you that you are holy. We praise you that you will not tolerate sin. Uh, we praise you that there is judgment for sin. And Lord Jesus, eternal God, Father God, we are eternally grateful that there is a way of escape. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, living on earth, being tempted as we are yet without sin, for your vicarious death at the cross, for your voluntary sacrifice of self and your victory over the tomb when you rose from the grave. Thank you for the newness of life that we enjoy. And Lord God, for anyone here this morning not trusting in you, Lord Jesus, by faith alone and in you alone, let them understand the severity of the situation. Help them to know that you would receive them to yourself if they would come to you and place their faith and trust in you, that if they would ask you for forgiveness, that you would cause them to be born again and adopt them into the beloved so that they would have an eternity in heaven in your presence. And help us to remember and celebrate all these things as we come to the table. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we do this thing. Amen.